0: with um, something that's really outside of the scope of what Daniel is trying to get across to us, but it's almost a little uh, parenthetical chapter. And it gives us a vision, or I should say a glimpse, into the angelic, demonic world that is not really a part of our maybe daily consciousness. So I've titled our message, Unseen Yet Real. We're all a little bit skeptical of things we don't see, right? Somebody tells you a story, you weren't there, you may not believe it. But we've actually just spent you know, two and a half years arguing about the science of something we can't see with a naked eye. But nobody's denying it. Well, actually that's not true. Most people aren't denying it. It was the 1600s. A man named Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek was in the textile business. So this is is not an MD, this guy's doctorate is in, you know, marketing textiles. And textile merchants used to use small lenses, and they would use them for cloth inspection. You know, so you could kind of see the weave, make sure there's not a lot of breaks in it, see the consistency of it. And this was long before medicine and microbiology, immunology, used any kind of magnification process. So it was actually the clothing industry that gave us the future of medicine. In 1653, this gentleman, Anthony, got his first magnifying glass and he just loved it. And he developed a passion for actually sort of grinding lenses himself. And in 1671, he builds his first microscope. Eventually, he built one that had 200 times magnification Eventually, he improved on that, got one to 500 times magnification. And then he put pond water under a microscope. Wow, it was alive. He saw organisms that nobody in the history of humanity had ever seen. This guy who markets textiles really is the father of microbiology. Without education, he is the father of microbiology. It had little impact then, sadly, because it could have saved a lot of lives. He built over 400 types of microscopes before he died. So fast forward about 200 years. This hasn't made it inroads into medicine yet. So now it's the 1800s and a man named Ignace Semmelweis, Hungarian I believe Ignaz Semmelweis noticed that infant mortality rates were higher so he worked in a he's a, he's an MD he's working in hospital he's in sort of a labor and delivery department I think that's what he did if he didn't he's around it and he observed that infants are dying at higher rates where doctors don't wash their hands and they're transmitting something from you know patient to patient and versus the delivery area that was used by midwives who evidently washed their hands. I don't know, their mommies told them to wash their hands before supper and before delivering babies. So the midwives are doing hand washing, the doctors aren't. And he spoke up about this in the hospital that he worked in and he was shunned and evidently he didn't know how to pipe down, he was fired. He went to another hospital he observed the same thing at that hospital. There are more babies dying where doctors don't wash their hands than where midwives are working. He said the same thing, again he was shunned. He was fired. He died before it was proven that things can be unseen but real, like bacteria. Later, uh, Louis Pasteur, I believe was one of the, you know, sort of the fathers of discovering that things like viruses they couldn't be seen were real. Actually, his family and others had him committed to an insane asylum. He's the father of hand washing. He is the father of hand washing. And all little boys resent that. But he is the father of hand washing. Now we're finding out you wash your hands too much with antibacterial soap, we might be messing up other parts of our immune system. It's just fascinating, this whole microbiology issue but there are things that are real that we don't see like viruses, like bacteria, like angels and demons. Somehow this subject of angels and demons is a lot like fairy tales and make-believe. Two boys are walking home from Sunday school. They had heard a strong sermon about the devil. One said to the other, what do you think about all this Satan stuff? The other boy replied, Well, you know how Santa Claus turned out. It's probably just your dad. I don't think we can so easily dismiss a subject that is mentioned over 300 times in Scripture. And particularly for people who like to think, oh, the Bible has all sorts of cultural things that come through and bleed through its pages. It doesn't mean they're real. It doesn't mean they're not, you know, being really taught. Well, I always love to point out when Jesus talks about that subject then. So you're saying Jesus is wrong about angels, demons, and Satan. That's a little bit of a leap I wouldn't want to take. And angels are routinely mentioned by Daniel, In fact, Daniel 10 gives us a glimpse into this unseen but real world. I would say it's a secondary theme in the book of Daniel. It's not necessarily even trying to be taught in Daniel 10 as much as we're observing it. It's an interruption in this series of visions. It's sort of the precursor to chapters 11 and 12. It's just the setup for that. But we learn, we observe a, a lot about it here. And I want to read Daniel chapter 10. It's on page 637 in the Bible that's in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, page 637, Daniel chapter 10. We're just going to read the first part of the chapter. So in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, so that's his Babylonian name, and the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. So I believe there he's probably looking forward into chapters 11 and 12. He's just giving a little background for the end of the book. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. So he's fasting, he's praying. I didn't eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment, think deodorant, at all until the entire three weeks were completed. So what he's basically saying is I was starving and I didn't smell really well by the time this was done. On the 24th day of the first month, while well, I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of euphes. His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless, a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. They knew something was going on and they left. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, now this is what's fascinating. This is an angel now coming to Daniel personally, not just in a vision. O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. So you fasted and prayed for 21 days. At day one, we we knew, and I have come in response to your words. At day one, I was sent. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. When, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, elsewhere called an archangel, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. So the angel's there to deliver basically chapters 11 and 12, and this is all a setup for that. But we get this glimpse into the reality and the role, one of the roles, of these angels. And I want to talk about that today because there aren't a lot of passages that just say, okay, here's a chapter on angels. They're, they're really mentioned more in passing throughout. There, there's a lot of teaching directly on it, and yet there are whole books written about it because there's a vast systematic theology of angelology in the Scripture, but not a lot of passages directly teach it. And I would say this is, again, one of those passages. It's not trying to teach us about angels. We're getting it indirectly as we're gonna receive Daniel's vision that we'll talk about next week. First, angels are God's messengers carrying out his will on earth. Now, their only role is not being a messenger of God, but it is a primary role. So I'm just going to give you some sort of systematic theology about angels that we observe in the scriptures that pretty much any conservative theologian believes. Angels are mentioned about 300 times in the Bible. They begin in the book of Genesis, they end in the book of Revelation, and it is throughout. 300 times. The Old Testament term is typically a Hebrew word, "malak," which basically means messenger of God. We find that word about 100 times, messenger of God. New Testament term. so angels appear a little bit more in the New Testament than the Old, angelos, which means messenger. So when we say angels are God's messengers, it's actually the definition of the primary two words that are used in both Hebrew and Greek, and angelos is used about 165 times term is always in the masculine. It's not that angels procreate, but they are viewed as masculine in the scriptures. They are created beings. They haven't existed from all eternity. Psalm 148 talks about how angels were created, just like the sun and the moon and the stars were. Angels are included. And we don't know the exact time. Some believe they're created along with creation. I'm one of these people who struggles with the idea that even if we have a young humanity, even for people who believe in a young humanity, a young universe, and I'm very open to those theories, I, I'm friendly with them, in fact. The bottom line is, I don't believe that God has been doing nothing from eternity past until whatever was created, if we have a young universe. So the bottom line is there are things that have existed possibly before everything we understand even in the scriptures. That's sort of my philosophical view. Not very Star Trek-ish, by the way, but it is my philosophical view. God hasn't been from eternity past doing nothing until we came along. So the term is always in the masculine, they're created beings, but we don't know the exact time of creation. I suspect they may have been created long before this. Job 38, four through seven indicates that angels were present when this earth was created, when we were created. They were all created good and holy, just like Genesis one talks about God creating this world, this universe, us, we are created holy, for God's purposes, for God's glory, They have elements of personality, they're they're smart, they have will, they exercise their will, they have emotion, we see that when we observe them in the scriptures. And because they have free will, with that free will, Lucifer, which is an angel's name, rebelled against God and took many of them with him. Isaiah 14 speaks to this. There's other passages that speak to this. In one passage, it might indicate about a third of the angels followed Lucifer against God and they're now referred to as Satan's angels or demons. So demons are angels. They are spirit beings. Generally, they're not visible. They might have bodies, but if they do, those bodies are not material like our bodies are, or they would be seen like we see. So in some part of the metaphysical realm, we're not saying angels don't have bodies, but we don't see them like you would see each other. They are seen at times, They are limited to one place at a time. They're not omnipresent like God is. They can't just be everywhere at once. They're limited spirit beings. They have often appeared in human form, in the scriptures. And I'm going to give you some examples of maybe in modernity. Sometimes they have some sort of splendor about them. You Think of when Jesus rose from the dead, the bright light around the angels, some sort of glory. They're fixed in number. They don't procreate. They're God's agents in the world. They fulfill his will, those that are good angels. They help with the governing of the world. They are agents of government transitions, which we'll see in this passage. They worship God. They intercede for God, for us. They comfort, they punish, they announce things that God is going to do. Think of the birth narratives of Jesus. They protect. The idea of a guardian angel, I believe, comes out of Matthew 18, 19, 20, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus talks about their angels in heaven, these little ones who are followers of him. So that's a real thing. There are classifications and ranks of angels. Some are called cherubim, some are called seraphim, some are called archangels. This is not a concept from a superstitious ancient culture that just bleeds into the Bible. It is unseen but real. It's taught from Genesis to Revelation. They are prevalent in Jesus' birth, his life, his resurrection. In fact, I would say, in the life of Jesus, the demons are more prevalent than the good angels because as the Son of God comes against the forces of evil, he sort of seemed to prompt and provoke more of it. They're messengers of God, fulfilling his will. Second, Daniel's pursuit of God put him in the path of the angelic realm. And what I mean by that, I'm giving you a lot of information here, but Daniel sort of created this situation because of the pursuit of God and what he was trying to do in his book. He's, trying to, he's worried about the future of his people. He's worried about the future of Jerusalem. And so he's passionately trying to get God to tell him about it. God gives him these visions, and in a sense, because of Daniel's pursuit of God, he was more likely to be engaged with this, which I believe is true in our lives as well, which we'll talk about. Both the good side and the evil side. So I want to remind ourselves of what's going on in Daniel's background, the background of the book. So Daniel lived and wrote from captivity, He was taken captive into the nation of Babylon. They took sort of the best and brightest of the young people. They were sort of training them for the palace so that Israel would never revolt against Babylon. It was really actually good foreign policy. We're gonna deport a bunch of young people. You know, We're gonna get them in our youth group. We're gonna give them new names. We're gonna train them to think about our gods, et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe they'll grow up and become like us and they won't want to revolt against us and get their land back. It was just brilliant. And he lived then in Babylon. He had been captured and deported. But as a Jew, his natural question was, what about God's promises? Questions abounded as to whether God would still keep his promises, whether the Jews would ever go back to the promised land, whether their capital would be rebuilt, whether the temple would would rise again. And so that's what's going on in Daniel's mind. And in chapters one through six, we see that God's coming through for Daniel and his friends just like he did back in Israel. There are miracles taking place. And it's sort of an affirmation that God goes on the road. I mean, he travels. He's not just home team. He's got a good record in away games, too. And so God goes on the road. Chapter 7 through 12, God is giving Daniel glimpses into the future of the world kingdoms and especially what's going to happen to Israel in the end. Chapter 10 here is a part of that. Daniel's praying and fasting for 21 days. And that, because of what he wanted to get from God, prompted God to send him this angelic visit. But it's more than that. We get this glimpse into this unseen world. So this angel's been sent on day one, Daniel's praying because he wants to know about God's plans for the future of his people and of the temple. He wants to write them down for future generations. He's sort of in the middle of the path of God's activity and that's what created this attention in this unseen world. Now I think there's reasons it was Daniel, not somebody else. And I think because of Daniel's absolute commitment to God, and how God used him here. That's why Daniel got these. This time the angel appeared, It wasn't just a vision. The angel shows up, explains a few things to Daniel. Now the question is, because we want this to be applicable to us, and not everything is applicable to us just because it's in the Bible. It's all true, but it doesn't mean it all applies to us very directly. Jesus walked on water, I'm not gonna try it, except in the winter, on a lake, where I feel miraculous. I used to, this is terrible. This is probably sort of spiritually abusive. My children, when we walk into a Walmart and you know there's going to be an automatic door, when they were little, I'd go, In the name of Jesus, open. I'd walk towards the door. (sighs) They just thought, Dad, what? There, never mind. Don't do that to your kids. That's just wrong. But I did it. So, what of this really happens in our world? Well, let me tell you a story. I'm gonna tell you a couple stories. This is just one guy's opinion of my experiences in life. And I am not a person who looks for angels and demons around every corner. If you know me, you know I'm about the most rational Christian I can possibly be. I probably explain away God at times, so I'm not one of those sort of fruit and nut Christians. When I was a pastor in another lifetime, There was a young man in our church in the youth group who would go through fits of sort of paralysis where he would be knocked to the ground and he couldn't get up. There's nothing physically wrong with him. And it it didn't make a lot of sense. It seemed a little bit like something out of the Gospels. And I remember talking to mom and um, you know, possibly to him as well, trying to figure out, is there something that he had sort of invited into his life from the dark side, if I can put it that way, that would lead to sort of these fits of paralysis where he'd be knocked to the ground, couldn't get up, didn't have strength in his legs. And uh, there was nothing, I believe, that they said he had sort of done or created to do this. We went to their home, we prayed through every room in their home, believing there was some sort of demonic, oppression going on in this situation. And I think the young man struggled with a lot of fears, as I recall, and that can be an opening for some sort of demonic activity. While that was going on, within that week, or within seven days of that week, I was laying in bed. And I remember just being woken up, and it was 2.22 in the morning, because I looked at the clock. My wife had fallen asleep downstairs. I don't believe it was because we were fighting or anything like that. In the hallway, there was a man standing, as visibly plain as you are to me right now. And my mind immediately went to this isn't good. I wasn't afraid. I didn't feel like it was a house invasion. It seemed like exactly what we're talking about. And I said, in the name of Jesus, get out of here and that being faded from an ability for me to see it. I immediately got up, went down, woke up my wife, and explained what had happened. But at that time in my ministry, I was dealing with somebody who was probably having some sort of demonic attack. When, I was, when my kids were young, if you were to interview my daughters, I believe all three of them have memories of looking at their bedroom doors and seeing soldiers standing there, as plain as you are to me. When I was dating my wife, I was at her home far, far, far too late in the evening. This is not a confession, just an explanation. Maybe it'll lead to a confession. I left her apartment, was going home, it was late in the evening. It was pouring rain. And I got to a bus stop. It was just up the street from where she lived. And there was an old lady at the bus stop in the pouring rain. Just, you know, kind of a short woman, medium sized, small. She, I don't think, had luggage with her. It was probably, I want to say, five ish in the morning. And I I just couldn't bear to see this old woman standing out in the pouring rain, and so I stopped the car and I rolled down the window so as not to totally scare her out of her mind. I think I rolled down the window and I said, you know, can I give you a ride somewhere? And she said she was traveling out to the west coast and she needed to get to the bus. So I invited her to come to my car, which she did. I'd never been to the bus depot in Minneapolis, nor do I ever want to go again but I somehow figured out how to get to the bus station, took her there, went home to the house that I owned and was renovating, and found out that during the night, my house had been robbed. And It immediately occurred to me that I'm not sure there was a real lady there, that I had been kept out of a situation that otherwise might have been dangerous, and if I'm in a situation like that, you probably know it's gonna escalate into danger. I'm an American. Now, I'm not a mystic, and I don't see angels and demons behind every corner, but that's my life experience, and I think there are three situations, one for sure, two probably for sure, the third one I'm not sure of, where angels or demons have gotten a glimpse, or my kids have gotten a glimpse into an unseen world. Hebrews 13.2 actually talks about this, where where whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, we're not sure. If we could get that verse up there, please. Hebrews 13.2 can we get that verse up there, please? Hebrews 13.2 says this. Do not neglect hospitality for strangers, or to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And we're not exactly sure who wrote Hebrews, but the apostle who wrote it says this. "You know, Be good to people you don't know. Be hospitable to them. Because throughout history, at times, Those have been angels appearing in human form and people have often then entertained them not knowing it. Something to think about. Again, I don't see angels and demons behind every corner. Number three, Daniel was given insight into the epic battle for the hearts of men and the direction of the world. Now this is just a fascinating passage. I love this passage. It's one of the most descriptive and insightful in all of the scriptures on this topic. When the angel arrives, he basically tells Daniel about his week. It was kind of funny. The angel gets there. He's like, "Oh, I'm 21 days late, you know." And, he, and he's basically, uh, you know, "This is what I've been up to lately." As soon as you started praying, I got the call. I, I didn't quite make it in time. I'm really sorry about that. You know, he's basically confessing his lateness here. Verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me. He was getting in my way for 21 days. I had to deal with this. Well, then Michael, you know, my buddy, the archangel, uh, paraphrasing a little bit here, came to help me. You know, I, you know, it was like three on one, and I'm trying to play his own defense, and I need a little help. So I got Michael. He comes and helps me. Then it's a little better. And then I was able to come here, for I'd been left there with the kings of Persia. Now it's plural. He had been battling other forces Then verse 20, which I hadn't read earlier, and he said, do you understand why I came to you? I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. This is just fascinating stuff. First he talks about how Michael got an assist in this whole battle thing. Then he's talking about world empires, the rise and fall, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. Because scholars who look at that recognize he's not referring to earthly rulers here. He is referring to a battle behind the scenes. It's as if the actual kings of Persia and the king of Greece are mere proxies, representatives of the actual battle between God and Satan for the direction of human history and of mankind. What he's saying here is there's stuff going on behind the scenes that we would never imagine. What what he's saying is these, these demonic forces and the forces of good are battling behind the scenes for the rise and fall of nations and governments. That's not hard to believe, is it? When you look around the world. Which means angels and demons are involved in the rise and fall of world powers. They're involved in elections. They're involved in wars. They're involved in the, the rise of the opioid industry and a few board seats and a few companies that destroyed a young generation of people. They're involved in Supreme Courts. They're involved in cultures. I'll give you an example. When I pull out my passport and I go through the border, it actually just happened to me, going across the border into the U.S. And guy says, you know, he knew what I did for a living, so he said, you know, this Cambodia, Vietnam, or those missions trips? I'm like, yeah. And I said, yes, and you do need to explain that. Do you know why? Because that's like, that is like ground zero for child trafficking and prostitution. And people who look like me, especially people who look like me, they go there for those purposes. If you are an old white male on an airplane going to Cambodia or Vietnam, you better explain that you're not going there for ill intent. Because in that culture in Cambodia, because we supported orphanages, led by a woman named Marie Enns, who's called the Mother Teresa of Cambodia. She's from Saskatchewan. She's Canadian. She was in the Christian Missionary Alliance, retired, decided, you know what? Cambodia, they love old people, they respect them, and I'm going to just stay here and give my life to building orphanages. This was during the AIDS epidemic. And during the AIDS epidemic, men would go home to their wives and they would have a physical relationship, but they'd also just been to the prostitute, they'd have a physical relationship with her. They took AIDS home to the wife. Both parents died within a couple of years. This was before antivirals. All these kids, thousands of them were left. And so Marie Anne started these orphanages for all these children whose parents were dying of age and I've been there, I've been in her little bungalow there and she was doing this into her 80s. I'm assuming she's still alive. I think because of what she's doing, she's gonna live to 180. But in the culture of Cambodia, now when it's not just the AIDS epidemic, it's also just children that are in deep trouble because of poor families, families will routinely sell the virginity of their daughters as soon as their daughters come of age. Don't necessarily sell them into prostitution permanently, but sell their virginity off to get a cash settlement. Then maybe they get them back, but can you imagine being traumatized as a little girl like that? How many of them do you think do end up in prostitution or on the streets or pimped out? I want to go in there like Rambo and fix that don't think for a second that the demonic forces of this world aren't actively involved in perpetrating the kinds of cultures that destroy humanity. Ephesians 6.12 actually talks about this. Ephesians 6.12. Paul writes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against, you know, you and me, things we see, people but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here Paul is saying, our battle, it's not just the things we disagree with, you know, the government or, or those kinds of things. He uses the word archai, which means governments or rulers, exousia, authorities, Cosmocratories, world rulers, powers of this world. But he says those are not flesh and blood situations. Paul is looking into the demonic realm and their control and influence in the world we live in. Daniel was told by an angel directly, after 21 days of no deodorant, no food, angels standing back two or three meters, Hey, you know, I used metric there. I'm proud of myself. I feel more Canadian. You can talk to me about that later in the foyer. <laughs> now I feel French. I'm even more Canadian. I'm really working on it. The work permit is just the start. Sorry. Well, now even more Canadian. Okay. <laughs> Daniel was told by an angel about this battle. Daniel had interrupted it. Daniel's prayer, his need to see the world's future, interrupted it. So theologically, this is the way I want you to look at this. God is sovereign, which means he is in control. God is sovereign. He's in control. He's all-powerful. The forces of evil exist within God's world along with a few wild cards. The world... That part of our world system that's philosophically organized against God and his kingdom, that's the world, like the philosophy about the value of children in Cambodia, that's the world. The flesh, that part of every one of us that is sort of trained by the sin nature, it's our our sin nature, if you will, and our free will. Jesus doesn't control our free will, he chooses not to. Jesus and Paul both refer to Satan as the prince and ruler on this earth. So God is in control ultimately, but he's allowing battles to play out in our lives and in this world. We're part of the battle. The rise and fall of nations is part of this battle. The church and its success in a world of false religions is part of this battle. It's a critical part of it. We exist in a war zone. I don't think of it that way. Biblically, we exist in a war zone. We can ignore it, we can act as if it's not real, like bacteria, but the Bible says that would be a mistake. And I think this helps to explain some things. All right, a few applications, and I'm gonna try to hurry a little bit. We all live in a war zone. It's wrong to ignore whole concepts. It's wrong to ignore whole concepts in the Bible in order to emphasize the ones we like. Example, well I don't want to believe in hell. God is love, can't exist. Well guess what, I'm gonna tell you this, I'm gonna admit this as your pastor, I don't want to believe in it either. But I don't have an erasable Bible, do you? There's a lot of things in here I don't like. There are times I don't like God. But I would die for him. Doesn't mean I like him. I don't get to make him. Love of God, no hell. Grace of God, no ethical responsibilities because God is gracious, he'll just overlook everything. We don't get to do that with the scriptures. And here, God is good, God is all powerful, therefore I should expect a good world. Wrong, wrong, wrong. God is good, maybe not the way you think of good, but God is good, ethically, morally. Doesn't mean he's gonna give you everything you want, like. You know, extra candy in your life every time you're hurting. God is good, God is all powerful. Doesn't mean you get a good world. We live in a broken world that is awaiting its overdue redemption. That's what the scriptures actually teach. We live in a war zone. But in chapters 11 and 12, Daniel talks about how it's going to end. We win. Next, we influence, to some degree, our proximity to the unseen battle. Now this is kinda interesting. I remember talking to a woman once who, um, who was coming to a, another church that I pastored and she was, I was trying to counsel her about something she was dealing with so whenever she'd get near the building, she had this incredible physical discomfort. Now I've had that effect on many women, but, but this was different, this was different. She was experiencing incredible physical discomfort when she would get near church and come into the building. And and I said, have you ever like opened yourself up to her, been involved sort of in the cult, any of that kind of stuff? And yeah, yeah. So she had opened the door to sort of evil influences in her life, some sort of demonic influence to the point where when she was by an evangelical church that taught about who Jesus was, she physically was sort of sick. Interesting, isn't it? This kind of stuff, I think, if you're doing the right thing and if you're loving God and trying to change the world, you're more likely, possibly, to have some sort of interaction with the angelic realm. If you're doing really, really bad stuff, you're also more likely to be involved in the angelic realm on the other side. I I remember an illustration about the demonic world. It's kind of like rats. They're attracted to garbage. The more garbage we put in our lives, the more garbage we're around, we're more likely around that. Angels to the good demons to the bad. We influence to some degree our proximity to all of this. Third, stop blaming God for the things he does not choose to control. Again, God is all powerful, God is good, why does my life stink? Wait, God has chosen to allow us to live in a war zone for a while. He doesn't control the world, everything about it. He's allowed free will both in humanity and in the demonic realm as well. The flesh, the weakness we all have in each of us, the devil, free will, all of those things. God chooses not to control them. Third, or fourth, don't disbelieve the unseen, but real. Hillary Russell and her parents, Susan and Richard, were on a mission of mercy that blustery day in 1978, they drove from their home in Florida to a deserted stretch of Miami Beach. Their English Springer Spaniel, Siddhartha, I don't know why you would name a dog that, but he had a bad case of fleas. That's probably why. He had, we had tried powders and baths, but nothing worked, said Susan. So we asked people, and they said we should take him to the beach and get him in the salt water. So you got a flea-bitten dog, throw him in the ocean just to get the fleas off. But before Richard, a poet and English professor, and Susan, a photographer and one-time lifeguard, could unpack their blankets, their little daughter, who was six and an enthusiastic little swimmer, made a beeline for the surf and waded into trouble. Mom and Dad yelled at her to come in. It was too late. She was caught in a riptide. Nothing we could do, said Mom, now 58 I couldn't make any headway. I wasn't strong enough to get to her. I thought this child's gonna drown because we can't get to her. There's no one else around. She was wrong. Suddenly, Richard noticed a dark-haired man, about 30, standing about eight feet beyond their daughter. When the stranger saw she was in trouble, Richard says he just plucked her out of the water and held her in his arms. Hillary, now 25, remembers little of her savior. She said he was tan, the hair in his arms was dark, It glistened even though it was cloudy out. What astonished Susan was the effortless way the man strode through the waves, which reached only to his chest, although he seemed to be in deeper water than that. Back on shore, the man put Hillary in Susan's arms. I said, thank you, thank God. Dad said, I remember him saying that's okay, and he was smiling. They embraced. They looked back, and he was gone. Disappeared. You decide. On the other side of it, a recent news story reported on an Irish priest, an exorcist, who's asking his superiors for help after noticing a dramatic increase in demonic activity. Friar Pat Collins said he has been overwhelmed with the number of requests for exorcisms in Ireland. In an open letter, he urged his bishops to train more priests to deal with the demand. Collins said it's only in recent years that demand has risen exponentially. His comments are on par with those of other exorcists throughout the world, including the International Association of Exorcists, the IAE, for those of you who like the a group of 400 Catholic leaders and priests which has reported a dramatic increase in demonic activity in recent years. In 2014, the IAE said the levels of demonic activity throughout the world had reached what they considered a pastoral emergency. I know you don't read stuff like this, but it's real. If you were in missions, you'd see more of it. I think Satan does a good job in the West by just having us disbelieve he exists because we want a scientific explanation for everything. And I think to be smart, that's what i do too, if I'm thinking like Satan. William Friedkin directed the 1973 movie, The Exorcist. It became one of the highest grossing films in history. Major pop culture influence was labeled by critics and voters as one of the scariest movies of all time. I am not recommending you watch it, I have. In a recent issue of Vanity Fair, he admitted that he'd never witnessed an actual exorcism. So, he considers himself an agnostic, he traveled to Italy to watch a real exorcism. When he returned to the U.S., he showed the video to two of the world's leading neurosurgeons and researchers in California, and to a group of prominent psychiatrists in New York, because in psychiatry, a lot of times, demonic activity is just viewed as schizophrenia and a mental illness. After watching the video, Dr. Neil Martin, Chief of Neurosurgery at UCLA, said, there's a major force at work within her somehow. I don't know the underlying origin, doesn't seem to be hallucinations, doesn't look like schizophrenia or epilepsy. I've done thousands of surgeries, brain tumors, traumatic brain injuries. I haven't seen this kind of consequence from many of those disorders. It goes beyond anything I've ever experienced. Dr. Itzhak Fried, neurosurgeon, clinical specialist in epilepsy surgery, seizure disorder, said, it looks like something authentic. She's like a caged animal. I don't think there's a loss of consciousness. I believe everything originates in the brain. Which part of the brain could serve this type of behavior? Can I characterize it? Maybe. Can I treat it? No. So here's what this guy said. He wrote The Exorcist. They wouldn't come out and say, of course, this woman is possessed by Satan, but they seemed baffled as to how to define her ailment. I went to these doctors to try to get a rational scientific explanation for what i had experienced. I thought they'd say this is some sort of psychosomatic order, sort of it's in your head, you know, having nothing to do with possession. That's not what I came away with. Forty-five years after I directed The Exorcist, there's more acceptance of the possibility of possession, in other words, demonic possession, than there was when I made the film. He's not a Christian. We live in a skeptical world. Now, I'm, I'm in the front of that line. I'm, I'm a Christian, but I have the mind of a skeptic. I'm a Christian because I believe it's true. The Bible clearly teaches us that there is this unseen but real dimension of reality. So after you hear a sermon like this, I'm not saying go buy a Ghostbusters kit, you know. Now, that was a funny movie, but anyway. And I know if I asked if you've seen it, most of you would say, I don't know if I can say I did. He's testing us. I'm going to get in trouble. Somebody told me that the other day after the service, like, we're not sure we're supposed to admit it if we're going to get in trouble for it. Don't get a Ghostbusters kit, but believe that the world God created has unimaginable sophistication that is as much a reality as the part that you See? After I pray, or, or while I pray, our, our worship team's gonna come back up to lead us in a final song and, and also our prayer team's gonna come forward and, and if you have a prayer request for yourself or a friend, just want you to take advantage of that, come pray with one of them, uh, please do uh, use them for that. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this passage and this sort of glimpse into a world that we're unfamiliar with, but a world that is real, And I think of the passage in the Old Testament where uh, one of your prophets was fearing for the future and fearing for whether God's kingdom would survive, and you gave him a glimpse to see the armies of God behind the battle that he could see. And it changed his whole perspective. Help us to know that we are not alone in this world, that you are here, not just your presence, but perhaps billions of spirit beings that exist that you call in the scriptures ministering spirits that are a part of our lives and we don't even know it. Thank you for this truth. You know, it's sort of hard to believe and a little unusual for us. Thank you for this glimpse into that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon.